0: It's been estimated that the average person spends a total of three to five years out of our lives waiting. Waiting to be served at the shop, waiting on hold on the phone, waiting at red lights in the traffic, waiting for your number to be called at the RTA, waiting in the queue to get into the movies, waiting for your meal to be served at the restaurant waiting to see the doctors add it all up, they reckon it is about five years out of our lives. Today's passage from Isaiah is about waiting. It's about waiting for God's salvation to come in full. You see that reflected in the very first verse. Look at it again with me. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice, do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Now do you notice those last phrases? God says his salvation is close at hand. His righteousness soon be revealed. Both those things haven't happened yet, but they soon will. And so in today's section, God explains to Israel how they are to live while they wait for those things to happen all of which carries very closely on from what we saw last Sunday in chapters 54 and 55. You remember last week? It was all about how the suffering servant had unleashed the floodgates of heaven and that God's blessings could now pour out by substituting himself for us, by being pierced for our transgressions the servant brings in an everlasting covenant of peace. This is a covenant in which our souls will live and in which our souls will delight. This is a covenant in which a new perfect world will have eventually be brought in as a new, perfect, everlasting sign. And it was terrific stuff last week. But, of course, the reality for Israel back at the time of Isaiah, the reality was that all this lay in the future for them. The arrival of the servant, his substituting himself for his people, the pouring out of God's blessings, it's all to come. And so here in chapter 56, God explains to Israel how they are to wait until it comes. Now, you and I, uh, we're actually in a very different stage of history, aren't we? Because for us... The servant has arrived. thought about that last week. It's Jesus Christ. The servant substituting himself for his people. That happened when Jesus died on the cross in our place. The opening of the floodgates of heaven and the pouring out of God's blessings. We now enjoy it. Ephesians 1. We have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So you and I, we are not waiting in exactly the same way as Israel were back at the time of Isaiah. And yet... As disciples of Jesus Christ, there is, of course, a sense in which we are waiting, aren't we? We're waiting for Jesus to return, which Jesus said he would do. He said he would come back, he would wrap up this world and he would bring in that joyous new world that we started to hear about last week. And so you and I, we're living in an in-between time. The kingdom of God has come, but it's still to come in full. We have the spirit of God himself as our deposit, but a full spiritual body that's yet to come. We still live in a broken world, so the delight and the satisfaction that we heard about last week, well, we struggle to always feel that way as we wait for a new creation to completely arrive. And so although our situation is different to Israel, and we're going to need to bear that in mind as we look at today's passage, nevertheless, today's passage about waiting... It's still got some very relevant things to say to us as we wait. Two lessons stand out. The first one being God wants his people to wait with righteousness. Look at verse 1 again. This is what the Lord says maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Now, I want you to notice that word for. God wants his people to do what is right for my salvation is close and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Notice the link. You do what is right now because the fact that I do what is right will soon be seen. The New American Standard perhaps captures it better. You do righteousness for my righteousness is about to be revealed. In other words, God wants Israel to be a visible sign now Of what he will be seen to be in the future. God is just. God does right. And and one day everyone will see that. But as they wait for that day, Israel are to be what God will be seen to be. They are to maintain justice and do right. And in terms of Israel doing that, that will involve keeping a Sabbath. Verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, this is a little surprising that suddenly Sabbath-keeping is mentioned in today's passage. Isaiah has not mentioned the Sabbath since way back in chapter 1. Why suddenly bring it up here 55 chapters later? It's to do with a close connection between keeping the Sabbath and maintaining justice, which has been mentioned in the previous verse. Way back in chapter 1, maintaining justice and keeping the Sabbath were also linked together. That's because in the Old Testament, Sabbath keeping for Israel wasn't just a personal thing, it was very much a public thing. It was a civic thing. The Sabbath wasn't just for masters, it was for their slaves as well. It was even for their working animals, like oxen. To keep the Sabbath... Therefore meant, among other things, that you served God by justly caring for everyone, everything you were responsible for. So that you gave them a day off in seven as well. So here in today's passage, the Sabbath is mentioned because, for Israel, it's all linked with how, in their context, they are to go about maintaining justice and doing what is right. Now for us... Here is one of the points where we need to remember that our situation is not exactly the same as Israel's. At the time of Isaiah, Israel was, of course, living under the Old Testament law, part of which meant keeping a Sabbath. You and I, as Christians, this side of Jesus, we're not under the law. There is a very real sense in which God has never told us to keep a Sabbath. He told that to Israel at a time in history when being one of his people meant being an Israelite. Things are very different now. You don't have to be an Israelite anymore in order to be one of God's people. In fact, Jesus has done away with the need of even Israelites having to keep the law anymore. That's why several bits of the New Testament, Colossians, Hebrew, they make the point that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath rest. For us as Christians, the rest that we now look forward to is the new creation. So Sabbath keeping, it's not so much an issue for us anymore. But the principle behind it is the idea of God's people being righteous now as they wait for God's righteousness to be revealed. That's a helpful principle. The idea of God's people being a visible sign now of what God and his kingdom will be seen to be in the future. That's a helpful lesson. Especially so given what the passage goes on to spend most of its time talking about. Because after telling Israel to wait for God's salvation by effectively being a sign of what God is like, the passage now moves on to tell us something really important about what God is like. The passage goes on to tell us that God is mission-minded and therefore the implication is we should be having a mission mindset as well. As we wait. And this comes across in quite a provocative little section about two people who you would just not expect to see as God's people. See if you can pick out the two types in verse three. Let no foreigner who has banned himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Now did you pick the two. There's a foreigner and the eunuch. Firstly, there's the foreigner. Foreigners were allowed to be associated and affiliated with Israel, but they were never, ever, ever thought of in the same category as a full-blown Jew by birth. And as a symbol of that, foreigners were excluded from ever being able to enter the innermost courts of the Jerusalem temple. And so in this verse, the foreigner understandably says, well, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. The other person mentioned is a eunuch. This is someone who's been castrated. Often eunuchs were from a very poor background and they would be castrated so as to serve as slaves. Being castrated meant that you could be trusted to help dress and bath the master and his family. Plus, there's no way you're ever going to have your own family and so you won't be tempted to have divided loyalties. Under Jewish law, a eunuch, even if they were a Jew, ceremonially unclean. They were thought of as being incomplete. In the words of verse 3, I am only a dry tree. So here are two people you would not normally expect to be in God's people. Certainly not allowed anywhere near the temple. Look at what God says. Firstly to the eunuch, verse 4. This is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses what pleases me. And holds fast to my covenant. In other words, to those eunuchs who who actually do want to follow me, to them, verse 5, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that that will not be cut off. Friends, did you catch that? To ceremonially, unclean, incomplete eunuchs... Not only will God let them into the temple, he's going to put a plaque up in the temple in honor of them and treat them as, verse five says, "better than sons and daughters." This is virtually scandalous to an Old Testament Jew. And as for followers, uh, sorry, for foreigners who you might mention you might remember were also mentioned, look at verse six, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, or who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. In other words, to those foreigners who actually do want to follow me, verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Those last phrases, holy mountain, house of prayer, they're references to the temple. And so just like the eunuchs, foreigners are now welcomed in as well. Salvation has come fully to them in my house of prayer. Friends, for us who are foreigners, you know, like we're Aussie Gentiles, this may not seem a big deal, but back here, tucked deep inside the Old Testament, this is mind-boggling. It's showing us at least two things. Firstly, it's underpinning how radical a thing the suffering servant has done, that he truly has taken God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the salvation that Israel is now being told to wait for in verse 1 of today's reading, the salvation that they're waiting for, the salvation that the servant brings in, it's a salvation that's open even to eunuchs and foreigners, anyone who wants it. And as such, the second thing that this is showing us, and this is the biggie, In the context of the passage, we are seeing that God has a massive missionary heart. And his intention is to reach out and gather as many and as many and as many people as he can into his salvation, no matter how unlikely we think they are. And it's all best summarized in the final verse of the reading, verse 8. The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Here is what God is about. Gathering others. He is insatiable at gathering others. It's why the servant came to substitute himself for sinners so that anyone who wants to can have their sins washed clean. Anyone who wants to can now be fully members of God's family. No second class members, no excluded categories anymore. Anyone can be one of God's people as he gathers still others besides those he has already gathered. And you know what? With, with a reading like this ringing in our ears... When you turn to the pages of the New Testament, there is an extraordinarily beautiful example of exactly this happening. I reckon some of you know the story. It happens in Acts. Philip is out and about telling as many people as he can about Jesus. He comes across an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, did you catch that? Exactly a person who is precisely both the things mentioned in this chapter in Isaiah. A foreigner and a eunuch. And when Philip meets this Ethiopian eunuch, he just happens to be reading his Bible. Can you remember the section of the Bible that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading? Isaiah, exactly. He is reading Isaiah 53, the passage we looked at a couple of weeks back about the servant being pierced for our transgression. And Luke tells us that beginning from that scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And after that conversation, a foreigner and a eunuch welcomed into the people of God. Exactly as this passage said they would be because of what the servant has done, because of what God is like. Now, friends, pour all of this back in today's passage about waiting, a passage which is set up in verse 1 by declaring to us that God's people should be waiting now to show what God is like when his salvation comes in full. And so when God's salvation comes in full, his righteousness will be revealed, so wait with righteousness. And when God's salvation comes, God's great missionary heart will also be revealed, so then wait with a mission mindset. Keep gathering and welcoming others the way God does. That's the whole reason the servant came in the first place. Wait with righteousness. Wait with a mission mindset. And friends, here at DPC, we actually want to do this. Okay? Here at DPC, we want to be waiting well for Jesus' return. We want to be striving for righteousness and we want to be gathering as many people as we can. Let me tell you about something Session has planned to help us do that. Next next year, in Term 1... We are basically going to clear everything so that as many of us as possible can do a course called The Course of Your Life. Now, in previous years, we often have a whole range of things happening across DPC in Term 1. We have breakfasts, we've had women's conferences, we've had men's events. This year, you might remember, we even had a children's ministry day. Next year, we're not going to do anything else Apart from our Sunday meetings, we're not going to do anything else in term one other than the course of your life. Growth groups will not start till term two. We want to clear the decks so as many of us as possible can do this. The course of your life aims to help us get onto God's wavelength. It aims to help us think through God's big purposes and plans for the world. The sorts of things we've been thinking about in Isaiah. But this course helps us get up close and personal and practical into what part we have to play in all of this. In the course's own words, it seeks to revolutionise our hearts and minds and help us to be disciple-making disciples. Disciple... Making disciples. That is a phrase we're going to hear a few times while we do this course. Because we are firstly disciples. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're people who trust Jesus, follow Jesus, learn from Jesus, want to be like Jesus. In the words of today's passage, we are striving to do righteousness. But we're more than just disciples, we are disciple-making disciples. We're disciples who have been sent by Jesus into our streets and our neighbourhoods and our workplaces and our schools to make other disciples. Because remember what most of this reading today has been about? God is open-hearted and he always wants to be gathering still others along with those he's already gathered. course of your life wants to help us be involved in the gathering. Alan has test-driven this course with a few people. And we reckon it's worth as many of us as possible doing it as well. So, term one next year, we're going to be offering the course on just about every single night of the week, as well as during the day on at least Wednesday and Thursday mornings as well. The idea is you simply sign up to whatever time in the week you can get to. The course goes for nine sessions. In each session, there'll be opportunity to break up into smaller groups. Say, for example, if you choose to go along on a Monday night session, it might be that there'll be 30 other people from right across DPC turn up as well. For some of the night, we'll all be together in the bigger group, but then we'll also get the chance to break up into smaller groups so as to help each other interact with stuff. As well as that time, we will also be meeting once a week one-on-one with someone of our choice from within that smaller group, just to read the Bible and pray together. Those one-on-one times are basically a mini training time to help us feel confident, help us get a bit of experience in how to get together with another person and build them up in Christ. And then thirdly, the course ends with an intensive which in most cases works best for those smaller groups that we've been in to go away for a weekend together. The final intensive matters it will be important in those little groups to figure out how we can go away and do the intensive together. But so as to make it as easy as possible for as many of us as possible to do it. We have booked next year two consecutive weekends at Ridgecrest so that groups can get to pick which other one suits them and we can all go away en masse and pull all the threads and integrate things together. Course of your life. A weekly big group time a weekly one-to-one time with someone that we're comfortable with, a final intensive. We'll be hearing a bit more over the next few weeks, the practicalities of this. Does it sound a little different and scary? Yep. Will it mean having to rearrange some things in your life during term one? Maybe. Maybe. Will it involve a step up in commitment? Possibly. Will it be worth giving it a go? Absolutely. This is nine weeks and a weekend out of our lives and it's a chance to see more clearly what God wants our lives to be. It's a chance to help each other wait well. For Jesus. Because I started out by quoting that stat about how the average person spends a total of three to five years out of their life waiting. There is, of course, a sense in which we, as disciples of Jesus, we spend every year of our lives waiting. For every minute of every day, we are waiting for our Master to return. And that waiting can be exciting, but it can also be difficult. It tests our patience, it tests our stamina, it tests our faith. And for some people, the waiting is all too hard and they fall away altogether. But for those of us who actually do want to hang in there, we don't want to be sitting around on our hands while we wait. We want to wait well. We want to wait as good ambassadors for God's kingdom until it comes. And so we wait with righteousness and we wait with a mission mindset. We wait as disciple-making disciples. And anything that can possibly help us do that, it's got to be worth giving it a go. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your open-heartedness that now through what the servant has done, anyone who is repenting can have their sins washed clean. Thank you. Thank you that it's because of your mission heart that you have welcomed us in. Lord, as we wait for your son to return, help us to wait well. Father, we'd really like to commit to you this idea of the course of your life. Father, uh, it seems to us to be a good opportunity to sharpen each other and enthuse each other so as to wait well. So we commit it to you and ask that you would help it to do that. But Father, in whether it's that course, in whatever way, we pray that you would help us to strive for righteousness and seek to gather as many people as possible into your kingdom, that by your grace we might win some. For, Father, help us to endure and be active and waiting well for that day when your righteousness will be revealed and your great mission heart displayed to all. Amen.